Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, we are examining uh, Dick's 1960 novel, Vulcan's Hammer. And this is the third episode on this novel. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous two episodes. Um, But if you are just joining us, I'll try to get you up to speed on on where we are in the final third of this relatively short novel. Um, it's a not, although it was published in 1960, it was originally written back in 1953 and then put on a back shelf. And some Philip Kiddick fans probably think it should have stayed there. This, along with Dr. Futurity, are not seen as some of his best novels. In fact, both of those were written in 1953, so they're really early efforts by Dick, and they have a lot more in common with some of his earlier novels, such as The World Jones Made. And I, I call these his political dystopias, his experiments in political dystopias. And he wrote about five novels that experimented with different types of political systems, how they would work, what would bring them down, what are their weaknesses, what are their ideologies, and they're all rather different. And in a way, I think these works fit together nicely as a response to, to I think, works like 1984, Orwell. And I don't want to be too hard on Orwell here because he is such a important writer of the 20th, 20th century and certainly influential in science fiction. But I think sometimes when we look at works like 1984, we get the sense of this inevitability or this the irresistibility of state power, the incapacity of people to resist it, right? Because that, that's a major theme. It's like this is, when you read 1984, you get the sense this is the inevitable outcome of wherever we're going and wherever we're coming from. And the problem with this is it's it becomes something that can get late, tagged on to pretty much any political ideology. So if you're from the right, you say, well, 1984 is the end result of any type of socialism. And if you're maybe on the left, you see, you know, 1984 is is basically fascism. And then, you know, George Bush, I remember when um, George Bush was president, uh, I think it was a radio talk show host I was listening to a bit at the time, Mike Malloy, he read 1984 as kind of resistance to Trump, as if, the th- not Trump to Bush, but as if the things Bush was doing are going to lead to 1984. I'm sure there's people saying the same thing about Trump now. So it becomes something we just kind of throw at whatever we don't like. We say that, you know, we're going to end up with that. And the other problem with it, and I think this is the deeper one, is it, it presents this image that whatever is powerful can't be broken. It, it's stuck there and we are stuck there and there's a rigidity to it. And it, it kind of limits our political imaginations and, and we've become kind of hopeless about change. And I think what Dick does in these set of novels, and it, it's Solar Lottery, Dr. Futurity, Vulcan's Hammer, The Man Who Japed, The World Jones Made, I mean, that's the set of novels. And there's a few novels written in the 60s that kind of carry on this tradition, but not nearly as as much. And that is what he does in here is he shows these systems as flawed, as internally divided, as having some internal weaknesses and internal failings. And then he shows ways that characters can undermine it and change it, sometimes from within, sometimes from the outside. And one thing that's notable about this particular novel, Vulcan's Hammer, is it's one of the few novels that Dick wrote 
in his entire career, actually, there are other examples, but there's not many of them that talk about external resistance movements against state power. Um, often Dick's kind of fatalistic about this as well, but there's a handful of novels like Our Friends from Full Ox 8, Falcon's Hammer, and Radio Free Albemuth, Valis to a certain degree, that have this idea of, of resistance. And I think that's important to keep in mind when you read him that, you know, the world may be made by people besides us, right? A lot of this is outside of our control, and that's a big theme that Dick has, is like the world changes around us, but not based on our will. But that that's something that can be resisted and rethought, and there's a space for, for protesting it. And yeah, Vulcan's Hammer, for all its faults, at least has a little bit of that. Now, the heart of this novel, though, is the idea of, of a total surveillance state, going to such extremes that although there is a bureaucracy with human beings with jobs to do they are the the whole the core decision maker of of the state is a machine is a computer right and the computer makes all the decisions and how does it do it well it does it through big data it collects all the information so it can see things it can see connections it can see outcomes of events it can be predictive in ways that human beings can't and i, I think that's the heart of dick's argument here now, not that it's not flawed, and, and one way it's flawed is that sometimes it doesn't get all the data that it needs, and there are characters actively working against the state. Here it's called Vulcan 3. It's a, just a big supercomputer that's automated, and it can expand even on its own. People can keep information from it, but if it has all the information, it in fact can be predictive, and it can intervene. And one of the big questions overhanging the first half of the novel is, if there's this active protest movement called the Healers that's trying to undo Vulcan III and restore some type of democracy or whatever, their ideology is not really that clearly defined. But if it's out there, why isn't Vulcan III doing anything about it? You know, and then that must be because it knows enough to know that this isn't a threat, so it doesn't do anything about it, right? It sort of can see the future. Big data allows one to see the future, right? And there's evidence that there's some truth to this. For instance, voting patterns, right? Big data allows political scientists to analyze voting patterns and have a pretty good idea of how people are going to vote. And that's why, you know, usually there are exceptions and there's a margin of error in all this, but we usually have a good idea of how certain states are going to vote in presidential elections, how, you know, who's going to win Congress. And, you know, it's big data that allows us to do that. Now, Vulcan 3 takes in all the information it can. That's what the bureaucracy does, feeds in all this information, and then it makes decisions. Now, the plot of the novel up to the final third, which I'm going to talk about in more detail, is, I guess it's kind of simple. It's basically... Uh, the main characters are kind of a head of the government named Dill, and he's like a high-ranking bureaucrat in Vulcan 3. And he has contact with Vulcan 3, and he has contact also with Vulcan 2, which is like an earlier version of Vulcan of the Vulcan system. Now, it's not the head of government, but it still kind of exists, and Dill consults it often. And Dill is keeping information from Vulcan 3. And it's not clear why. Well, the reason it, we find out later on that the reason why is that Vulcan 2 is actually advising him that Vulcan 3 is a danger and you need to keep certain information from him or it might start to act autonomously and, you know, become an even more automated state than it already is. Right. Because at the time the novel opens, we still have bureaucrats. Right. But Vulcan 3 eventually develops for itself the power to assassinate people, to identify and take out threats from far, far away using kind of drones. 
And so there's a lot of scary stuff that's actually quite contemporary in, in Vulcan 3, right? Uh, you know, especially with drones, I think, and surveillance states and the way, you know, the United States government has a good idea of where, like, the terrorists are, right? And when they want to take them out, they usually can with, you know, with drones and missiles and things. So that is kind of very true to life, and I think it's a scary part of this novel. Now, Dill is kind of working with Vulcan 2 to try to prevent this kind of catastrophic end and try to keep Vulcan 3 from having too much power. Vulcan 3 finds out about this and eventually destroys Vulcan 2. Dilf at first thinks it's the healer's movement or that the healers have infiltrated the, the movement. Um, it's not. He finds out that that's not true, that actually it was Vulcan 3 who did it. And then we're in this horrifying situation as we reach the climax of the novel in when Vulcan 3 is actively knocking off people it deems as a threat. Another part of this plot is a, is a man named Bears, who's a lower ranking bureaucrat in the Unity system. In the, in, it's called Unity. And he's kind of investigating the healer's movement on his own. And he also doesn't know why Vulcan 3 is not doing something about the healer's movement. Eventually, he ends up working with Dill and goes he goes and investigates the remains of Vulcan 2, which was destroyed. And he's able to dig out enough information and read these old kind of memory tapes and find out that Vulcan 3 was onto something and Vulcan 2 realized that Vulcan 3 is a serious threat to, to human existence. And what happened is when Vulcan 3 learned that Dill was keeping information from him, he just started to send out his own drones to collect data on his own. And then he was also using these drones to kill people. And there are a few, like one character who gets killed is the teacher of a woman named Marion Fields or a young girl named Marion Fields. The reason Marion Fields is important is because her father, Father Fields, is the leader of the healers movement so you know that 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 was he was, she was kind of being investigated by dill a little bit well he was more interested in marion but he knew about her and then when dill hears that she was killed he he doesn't really know why the healers would kill her it turns out it was vulcan 3 basically trying to clean up loose ends now in the backdrop of all this and as the point where you learn that vulcan 3 is the real danger the healer movement is growing, and that's been kind of in the backdrop simmering throughout the novel. The healer's movement is growing and trying to have its own external offenses against unity. So we actually end up with unity, the unity system having enemies from various different areas. One is its own kind of growing insanity, the insanity of the system. And I think that's a point Dick is trying to make here, that this surveillance state becomes by nature paranoid because a surveillance state assumes and let, until they're proven otherwise that someone out there is a threat and therefore collects information on them. And so this develops into a paranoia. And I think Dick has no problem imagining an automated AI or a computer system can develop paranoia. That's something he's done before in other stories. So that's one threat. The other threat is kind of the internal shenanigans of the Unity bureaucrats like Dill and Barris who don't quite trust Vulcan 3 and and maybe want to moderate the system a little bit and change it or Dill through trying to preserve the system sees Vulcan 3 potentially as a, as a long-term threat and then you have the external resistance by the healer movement kind of the popular democratic movement so all these threats are going on at the same time as we reach the climax of of the novel I know I kind of gave short uh, treatment to the first two-thirds of the novel but do, do go back and listen to my previous two episodes if you want to know more about them or just pick up the book and read it yourself it's a quick read it only takes you know a couple couple hours to read anyways it's it's one of i think it's the shortest novel 
So anyway, they're going to pick up, though, with chapter chapter 11 and look at the final four chapters and then talk about some of the themes that I think are most important in this particular story. Okay, the final thing that happened in chapter 10, actually, was Vulcan 3 is calling a meeting of all the directors, the directors' consuls, at, you know, basically to accuse Dill of being an enemy and he's going to be judged. So that's kind of where we pick up. So Barris and Jason Dill... Who are together they go together to geneva they go to this auditorium and it's filled with the various directors that's high level bureaucrats and they're going to hear this case from vulcan 3 about dill's treason and then we get we meet some of these other directors Ed, edward reynolds for instance of the eastern european district he heads the prosecution barris defends dill in front of the hearing he challenges reynolds propriety and suggests that Reynolds really wants to usurp Dill's position, that he has kind of a reason for leading this prosecution. He also presents evidence that Dill has been working for the best interests of unity. And here's where the, the kind of the political tension is. Can someone working a, kind of on the surface against the system from within actually have the best interests in mind? In the, in the same way he... Now, you know, like Vulcan 3 acts erratically because he's, he's making decisions based on big data. And so he makes decisions based on long-term consequences of things that that others can't see. Now, in a way, Dill, by he's coming at it maybe more morally or more from a different point of view, but he's also making decisions that others see as, as obviously clearly treasonous. You know. So there's a lot here about kind of the perception of actions and how the perception of actions may differ from, from intent. So, but anyways... Uh, this is what Barris is trying to argue about Dill. So he goes and pulls out the tapes from Vulcan 2, and Barris shows that Dill has been working not against Unity, but actually under Vulcan 2's orders, and was through Vulcan 2 and through his advice protecting Unity from Vulcan 3. And then he therefore he sort of declares Vulcan 3 as the true enemy of, of Unity. Bear, and, and I think this is something that's hard to see through much of the early part of the novels. What's the distinction between unity as a system, as a government, as a philosophy, as a ruling philosophy, and and Vulcan III as essentially its president, right? It's, it makes all decisions. It's the head of state. It has ex executive authority. It, you know, it controls this huge bureaucracy. But it's not unity, right? And I think Barris's point is that we need to separate these two. So Barris then prevents the evidence about the attacks made by Vulcan 3 on Vulcan 2, on himself in the hotel, which happened earlier in the novel, and on other people. Reynolds judges Dill insane, though, and declares this entire story is a fabrication. Barris and Dill realize that they must fight, but when they stand up, they're put under arrest. They try to escape the auditorium, but before they can leave, a metallic device like the one that attacked Barris earlier in the novel kills Dill and declares, and it does so in Vulcan 3's own voice, so Vulcan 3 is talking through these devices, these drones, declares Dill was a traitor and that there are other traitors out there. Unity must be defended against the healers, the, these directors are told. Barris fires at the metal hammerhead, and I think this is where the title ham Vulcan's Hammer comes from, but th th these are called hammerheads, and these are basically like these drones. One is destroyed, and then Barris is identified as a traitor by the same voice. So Barris joins with other directors who now realize the threat posed by Vulcan 3. Barris assures his allies that they will not be joining Vulcan 3 or the Healers Movement, but rather they'll be doing their own 
thing. That's not an either or, right? And so the, the idea that there's a third choice here, and that choice is, is it loyal, loyalty to unity, loyalty to the broader society or the, or the system? And sometimes that means going against those in, in positions of authority. So that's kind of Barris's reassurance to his newfound allies. So then chapter 12. So Barris, you know, secures himself in unity control, which is know, some kind of government building, and prepares for it for the defense. And of course, he's fighting both the healers and Reynolds and the kind of the Vulcan three loyalists. These flying devices are revealed to be adaptations made by Vulcan 3 from its own automated repair machines. And so Vulcan 3 itself has its own automated system of repair. It actually exists underground in huge caves, and it actually can dig out these caves and grow, make, grow bigger, grow within it. So it, it keeps getting larger and larger. He, Vulcan 3 was able to kind of repurpose these things into these, into these weapons. They are actually armed with these pencil lasers, which are the standard weapon of Unity officials. So it's it's got you know, Unity tech built into it. This seems to symbolize the takeover of their roles. Their, and this is how it's read by these bureaucrats, that their traditional weapon was this kind of pencil laser. And by using that in these drones, Vulcan 3 has taken over their, their role symbolically. Barris has a long conversation with Marion Fields about the healer movement and about the place of the healer movement in this kind of resistance. And, and it's kind of a really important discussion in this novel where, where Dick's kind of not entirely siding with the external revolt. I mean, I, I think like in The Man Who Japed, he thinks there's a lot of hope in resistance from within, like the middle management, the revolt of the middle management, I almost want to say. That that might be an interesting essay to, to write on Philip Dick, the, the revolt of middle management. So anyways, Marion predicts that the healers will win despite Vulcan 3's technological advantage. And this is that old standard argument, like the people united can't be defeated or whatever. But Barris tells Marion that the movement against it is going to become stronger, or as the movement against Vulcan 3 becomes stronger, Vulcan 3 will increase its defensive capabilities. That it's not, that in fact there are limits to the power of the people, and that is the state power will always be greater. So this is you know, why there has to be some kind of internal change. He says, if the entire world is against it, Vulcan 3 will prepare weapons to match that challenge. And the suggestion there is maybe Vulcan 3 will even destroy the Earth. Marion Fields tells Barris, or helped Barris navigate a ship to where her father is staying. Barris tells Father Fields, and they had met before earlier in the novel, but Barris tells Father Fields that he's skeptical that the healers you know, can undo he, unity or have even kind of scratched the surface of undoing, if not just unity, but certainly Vulcan 3. Fields reveals that unity is actually been destroyed by the healer movement, but only the structure is left. And so Fields has, a, a I guess, a bit more, he's, he, he sees unity as much more of a shell, and all that's left is kind of this tyrannical Vulcan 3 machine AI. And the structure itself has already been destroyed by the healers movement, even if it's still there, right? It's kind of been rotten out from the within and from external pressure. Barris eventually confirms his suspicion. And that is that the movement, the healers movement, was actually begun by Vulcan 2. Vulcan 2 was a true leader of the healers movement all along. 
And the reason it was keeping information for Vulcan 3 was in order to give the healer movement time to grow. And so the big mystery at the beginning of the novel, why was it that Vulcan 3 wasn't acting on the healer movement? Because that's this whole point of this big data, right? You catch those threats early when they still can be snuffed out. But the healer movement grew. Why? Well, it's because Vulcan 2 was cultivating the healer movement and Vulcan 2 was using Dill to prevent information from getting to Vulcan 3, any information about the healer movement. So it would have time to grow large enough to be this threat. Now, you know, there's different interpretations you can have here. You know, how much did the unity, did the healer movement undo unity? How much was unity internally flawed? How much, you know, was, was there other reasons for this? But, you know, at this, at this point in the book, it's revealed that Vulcan III was the true mastermind of, of the healer movement, not Father Fields. And then we get to chapter 13. Father Fields, at this point, doesn't believe that Vulcan II would be... Now, he's, he's a bit incredulous that, you know, when Bear says, you know, I, you know, it's pretty clear to me now that Vulcan 2 is behind this movement, right? And it's pretty convincing the way it's presented. Father Fields, the leader of the healer movement, doesn't want to believe that he's just the agent of a computing machine, right? How could Vulcan 2, how could a robot, how could a machine, an AI, whatever, start a movement of resistance based on freedom and the values of democracy? These are very human values, right? And, for, you know, so this is Father Fields' incredulity about this. Bears, though, accused Fields of being behind the destruction of Vulcan 2 and suggests that maybe it wasn't Vulcan 3 who did it. He says, Fields, you were doing this in order to assure his own dominance in the movement. And the reason he starts to think this is because Father Fields, you know, comes out so hostily to this idea that Vulcan 2 had any leadership movement in it. Rachel Pitt, meanwhile, is revealed to be Father Fields' older daughter. Rachel Pitt was the wife of a Unity agent who's killed in the opening pages of the novel. And then she speak, talks to Barris. You know, she's kind of debriefed by Barris. And Rachel Pitt comes off very hostilely to Unity. And you think it's because she's just grumpy. She's upset that her, that her husband was killed. But no, it actually turns out that she's connected to Father Fields. He's his older daughter. Fields confesses eventually to being the real one who destroyed Vulcan 2. So that previous plot we were given where Dill, Dill came up believing that Vulcan 3 was destroyed by, or Vulcan 2 was destroyed by Vulcan 3, turns out to have just been a, a red herring. And the reason Fields wanted to destroy Vulcan 2 is because it was holding the movement back and probably holding back his own leadership in that movement. Barris warns him that, and here's where Dick sort of makes his overt political argument here. And that he says, basically, only from working within the system could a bureaucratic state like unity be dismantled. That, uh, you know, these kinds of systems are, I guess, self-repairing or they're stronger than like an, a disorganized, a relatively disorganized movement. I mean, he, the healers are organized, but I guess the idea is in contrast to a system like that controlled by Vulcan 3, the healers can never really match them. So it has to be broken down from within. Barris tells Field that he has the means to get at Vulcan 3. So back at Unity Control, the surviving directors working with Barris are defending the building from increasingly active and aggressive attacks by Vulcan 3 through these drones, these hammerhead robot things, flying, I guess they're flying machines. 
Ferris navigates the defenses, and there's a bit of an action scene where he navigates his defenses. He reaches the computer at the lower levels of the fortress. Fields is initially disappointed because this was the same location where he had previously worked in mining crews. And, you know, this gives him actually the internal side knowledge he needed to destroy Vulcan 2. Um, but he missed the existence of Vulcan 3 in the same building. So he, he thinks, well, you know, I... Now we get a little bad Fields background. He worked on the mining crews that dug out the, the underground tunnels in which the Vulcan 2 was built. And he that's how he was able to destroy Vulcan 2 because he knew how to get down there. But he didn't realize that Vulcan 3 was just like literally next door and he maybe could have destroyed him at the same time. And then we get to the final chapter of the novel. Barris uses his authority as a unity director to get through the guards blocking the entrance to Vulcan 3. Barris meets with Larson. Larson is kind of the the tech who runs Vulcan 3. He's kind of the one who gives it data. He inputs it and helps maintain it. He has always been loyal to Dill. And even though Dill's dead, he's still got that loyalty. So Barris, you know, he's able to kind of work with Larson to complete Dill's vision and plan. Barris, which is not really necessarily destroy Vulcan 3, but to, you know, control it. And at this point, though, it's clear that the only way to do this is to destroy uh, Vulcan 3, and that's what Barris tries to do. He attempts to plant a fission bond near Vulcan 3, but it's discovered by a small metallic bug, which is used by Vulcan 3 to get information. And, you know, these are kind of like the juveniles in The Man Who Japed, or if you've seen the movie Minority Report, the little spidery things that, you know, can keep tabs on everyone. These are around, and it, see, it finds the bomb. It tries to alert others of Barris's attempt, and then Finally, it tries to negotiate with Barris, but he's eventually able to just plant the bomb and destroy Vulcan 3. Fields and Barris then discuss the future of Unity. Vulcan 3 will be rebuilt, but it'll be rebuilt just to service the state, but not to control it. So what happened? So in the original setup, we got Vulcan 3 making decisions and then the human bureaucrats implementing them. So the we have a machine making decisions, then we have people in a machine, a bureaucratic machine, implementing those decisions. It gets switched, so the plan then becomes to keep a new Vulcan 3, but program it such to just be the bureaucracy, to be a servant of the people or the state, which will make decisions. So the idea is to keep human beings at the center of decision-making processes. So this is back to Dick's overall feeling on automation. He worries about it, he's anxious about it, and he thinks there needs to be human controls on, on automation. So that's kind of the future of Unity. It's foreshadowed briefly. Later in a hospital room, Barris talks with Fields a little bit more about the future. Fields wants a more revolutionary change. He doesn't want to go back to, he doesn't want to rebuild Vulcan 3 at all. But Barris insists on establishing a new form of Unity that's more accountable to humans. And to get started in the new era, Barris will support a general amnesty that will lead to, that will kind of basically help forgive the healers movement. And so that gets us to, to the end of the novel. That's all there is to it. So it's kind of a nice, happy, clean ending um, that predicts that much of the old system is going to remain. It's still going to be a surveillance state. It's still going to be a, a system with kind of operating with a giant supercomputer, an AI that can manage com the complexity of the government, but it will just be slightly more human controlled. It's, it's kind of, in some ways, a bit of a letdown if, if you kind of feel sympathy for the healers movement or you don't like this Vulcan 3 idea. You want to see 
you know, kind of a, a true democracy established. That's not really what we get. We don't even get a question, a, a threat to unity itself as a ruling philosophy. You know, in, in a sense, in the man who, or no, in the world Jones made, you see kind of the weaknesses of, of relativism. That's the philosophy there. And we see it's challenged. Here, unity is not even very clearly defined, much less questioned and challenged, except in kind of a broad terms. And at the end, the solution is we keep unity, but we just run it a little bit differently. So all we get kind of at the end of this novel is a little bit of a tweak. And that, that makes it kind of, I guess, disappointing and not very... Not very satisfying, perhaps, to a lot of readers. Okay, so let's let's talk about the themes of this of this novel. So, as I said in the previous episodes, I think there are three things that make this novel at least relevant to us. You know, even it's not it's not like I'm going to recommend this book, but if you do read this, I think these are the three most important points Dick is trying to make. One is on the surveillance state itself. The other is kind of its aggregate, it's, it's, it's corollary, I mean, and that's big data, right? The surveillance state works with big data. And they often, the technologies of the surveillance state and the technologies of big data go hand in hand, actually. And then the third theme would be automation, especially the automation of government functions. And to what degree should we give over the function of government to machines and to what degree do we need to have democracy? I, I guess the, the ultimate ext other extreme of automating government would be the town hall meeting kind of anarchist face-to-face -face direct democracy kind of idea where every decision is worked out where you reach a consensus, right? And you, you, you know, and then you agree to do certain decisions and, you know, can that work on a large scale? you know, or it can only work on the small scale. I don't know, but that seems to be the opposite. And then you got this where everything is automated. And then I suppose there's middle ground, right? Where big decisions are left to people and to democracy, but a lot of day-to-day -day stuff could be automated to just get rid of unnecessary bureaucratic labor. Are there threats to that? I don't know, but there, there seems to be a continuity here of two extremes. And most of us, most of our governments fall somewhere in the middle. But I think Dick is right to acknowledge that there is automation in in all government functions to a degree. I mean, it's kind of be silly not to decide, you know to automate some things. It's the same with work, you know. So, anyways, um, these are all connected, uh, and and I guess it comes down to what degree is political freedom possible in the age of technological surveillance. So one answer that we get in the novel is that the technology of the surveillance state and big data does not necessarily post a threat to liberty. It's merely a technology that can be used by states for a variety of purposes. And there we only need to pass the right laws, implement controls, respect civil liberties, and can't all those things be automated and integrated into the machine itself? Right? Um, you know, we, we give them Asimovs, I guess, would be the idea. So we can get the good from the technology, right? We, we maybe suppress crime, we stop terrorism, we regulate business, we abolish unnecessary bureaucratic labor, we make government work more efficiently, but without necessarily the bad, right? Unjust invasion of, of privacy or, or things like that. Well, big data and surveillance technologies are of course nothing new, but our capacities to implement them have increased greatly. And you know, it's, it's, this novel is actually fairly Prophetic. I mean, I know Dick gets labeled that it's from a prophet a lot, but not because of this novel. But in, in some ways, I think this, especially on the point of big data, this novel has a lot more prophecy in it than than some of the others. 
Another answer here is that surveillance is ultimately irrelevant and can be part of, of democracy, right? So I guess here we could say things like, well, technologies like Facebook, they show that people are not really interested in protecting their privacy. And yeah, we have the healers movement in this book, but by and large, it seems most people are comfortable with that. And where do we see this best is, I think, in The Man Who Japed, where people seem to accept a surveillance state as long as it's equitable and, and everyone's treated fairly and the same rules apply to everyone. And in fact, many, you know, the point with Facebook is that people post where they are, what they're doing, you know, to the public. And there are examples, of course, of police catching criminals just by watching their Facebook feed and, you know, knowing where they're going to be. Most people find surveillance less odious in practice than in theory, right? They walk by cameras with a little thought. They don't, they're not really necessarily bothered by that. You know, if you sit down and talk to them and says, you know, do you think it's good the government watches you? They'll say no. But, you know, in their day-to-day -day life, it really doesn't matter that much. And people can see to accept it, even if they know intellectually that it's going on. So I guess the alternate idea is... Or I guess here's the point. If our idea is deliberative democracy, right? If that's our goal. If our goal is a system in which everyone shares their ideas and discusses it and puts what they believe on the table, the idea of hiding our political activities and ideas underground makes little sense, right? Politics is supposed to be fought in assemblies, on the streets, and in town halls. And yeah, I guess we have the private ballot, but politicians who have a lot of power and would be threats to a ruling order, they, their career is about publicly declaring what they feel about things. So what's, what can a movement, a political movement that hides underground do? I guess organized revolutionary kind of resistance, but that's not what most of us associate with, with democracy. Democracy is something that's in the open. And so it's, I'm not saying it's, it's hand in hand with the surveillance state, but it implies a society in which we're encouraged to be open about this. I, I remember reading something about the ancient Greeks and how they talked about how the ancient Greeks, in Athens at least, the worst type of man was the one who didn't express his opinion politically, right? The kind of the coy politician was the worst kind of man. The best, and they, they, these were all men, right? That the best one was the ones who stated their opinions, even if it was unpopular, right? At least you were doing that. You were being public with your ideas and standing up and addressing them. So the idea of having kind of a hidden political agenda seems rather silly. And in a way, that's true in other ways as well. Like, you know, think about like The Eye in the Sky, that novel that Dick wrote in 19, I guess, 56, 57, where you have the closet communist, right? Well, the fact that he's a communist is irrelevant for the whole plot of the novel, really, because he's not doing any communist stuff. You know, he's just deep down a communist. I mean, what you do matters in politics, it seems to me. So I, I guess I'm getting a little off track here, but I'm, I'm just getting this idea that that there doesn't seem to necessarily be a conflict between democracy and the surveillance state. In You know, depending on how it's framed. Now, in many cases, it, it seems to be used to actively suppress democratic movements or democratic potentialities. But anyways... Um, or I'm even thinking here maybe of like the sexual revolution where the sexual revolutionaries believed in the, like they, they, they had that slogan, like the personal is political, right? And they, they thought there was political value in like 
the nude ends and in public sex and in group sex. They, they thought that was like political. Now, whether they were right or not, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to necessarily get into that, but they believe that it was politically a political act to do that. I, I'm not sure how much we want to buy that, but it's something to think about in the age of, of you know, you porn. Um, so the sexual revolutionaries found public sex radical, you know, and, and so the idea here is maybe we, instead of trying to fight the surveillance state, we should do more to fight for the commons. And instead of trying to protect our private lives, we should fight for a more public life, actually in a broader public sphere and a broader public place for all people. And, you know, we, to, you know, we can retreat to our private lives and defend our private lives, right? Use VPNs and blockers and, and close the windows and make sure no, you know, black out all the cameras. And then we end up with a very insular life where we're, we're politically in, inert. I hope that's clear, but if you have any, if you want to engage me with those, I'd love to talk about this, this dilemma, because I, I don't know where I stand on it, but I, I think there's something to this argument if, if we work it out. Now, another, I guess the more common view of the surveillance state, and again, it's kind of expressed in this novel and in, a, in our own world is that the surveillance state is evidence of an expansion st expanding state that's that's by its nature an enemy of all liberty right so you know i think chris hedges kind of talks this way he's a journalist that you know every aspect of the surveillance state is just the tyranny of of the state coming down on us and, and inching in a little bit more and more and more big brother's watching you he'll use your data to collect to suppress all social movements he'll defend they'll defend the corporate state ensure the domination of the ruling class and suppress all freedom and the you know there's nothing we can do about it except kind of ennui and that's what i feel when i read or listen to chris hedges but there's other people who kind of have this basic assumption that all roads lead to oceania and, and that's why it began this with the discussion of 1984 and that's i understand why people think this way but i don't really know where that gets us because these technologies aren't going away and I think it, we, at some level, we have to make them. We have to make them part of a democracy. And I, I think the more of us that we agree to be open, you know, there's something to that. And back to the sexual revolutionaries. And let, let's not be too lured about this. But you know, a big part of the sexual revolution wasn't people doing new things. I mean, if anything, the Kinsey report showed that back, you know, in the 50s, whenever they were made. You know, all the stuff that gets labeled acts of the sexual revolutionaries were being done. But what the sexual revolution was more about was openness about what people did. You know, he Helen Gurley Flynn's book, Sex and the Single Girl, is just a, a one of the first kind of sexual tell-alls. And that was a revolutionary text because it was one of the first women, she was one of the first women who wrote down what she did sexually. And a lot of the sexual revolution was about telling and not so much doing although there may have been a lot of doing too but i think that's less important so i guess that that's i guess that's my response to the surveillance state is to is to cautiously embrace aspects of it in the in the sense of expanding the commons and making our the public space broader so in vulcan's hand we get a little bit of all these different approaches by making government a computer dick ensures that all data is listened to but he also shows that most people did not mind being observed, seeing it as a foundation of a stable and secure life. In any case, there are even internal checks on the power of Vulcan 3, this ruling computer. He's opposed by social movements. The older computer, Vulcan 2, is able to work against him, and people within the government are able to work against him. 
humans still have a say, no matter how diminished that say might have been. The fact that Dix openly and directly finds a solution to this problem of Vulcan 3 from within the system, he does not let Fields win, in the sense. He doesn't want the healers to win. He wants it to be Bears. He could have easily wrote a novel where the healers bring down Vulcan 3. It would have been a more, I guess, conventional tale of resistance. But no, he, he has Bears do it. And there's a bit of brilliance in that, I think. The lesson on automation is no less important than that of surveillance here. One of Dick's most important social and economic concerns throughout his career was the automation of human beings, or, or the challenge of automation to human beings. He's almost Marxist in his belief that an authentic human being depends on meaningful work that's not alienated. And he tends to think that automation completes the job of alienation. And I think for Marx, to a degree, technology creates, on the first hand, post-scarcity, but also then liberates people from some odious work to allow people to have more meaningful activities. In this novel, we find that not only has labor been largely automated, um, the government itself and all decision-making is handled by a computer. Is this necessarily contrary to democracy? A computer properly programmed could review the reading habits, Facebook posts, television watching schedules, daily habits, and probably determine with a fair level of certainty how any one person would vote on an issue and then make a decision that's corresponding with the general will. Direct democracy may be in our hands if we lose this fetish for voting, right? That it might be more accurate display of what people think. Big data might get us to more democratic decisions than voting, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I don't know, I'm sure there's people who've thought about this, but you know, it's just an idea. Now we get stability, we get a more broadly representative policy, now, Dick, of course, will have none of that. Uh, automation will always be a danger in his mind. It needs to be checked by humanism, whether framed in terms of production or more creative and intellectual enterprises, or in this case, in terms of, of, of having a government of the people. Set aside the computer at the heart of the system, we have automation in bureaucrats to a certain degree. I think in teachers who kind of deliver a curriculum that's created by others. The bureaucrats enforce rules from above. Teachers deliver curriculum created from above. Robots could have done that just as effectively, but have been incapable of, well, anyways, you know, whatever Dick is saying about automation here, it's consistent with what the other things he's, he has said about automation. And I still am not sure he's right about this. So what to say about Vulcan's hammer? Well, it lacks Dick's metaphysical questions. It's a good example, I think, of his early political writing. It has it fits really in his 1950 writings more than his 1960s writings. Um, in the 60s, his political fears are going to become much more Lovecraftian, and his early novels he has political fears that are very grounded in ideologies and ideas and systems that 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 we could see being implemented. Many of Dick's works from the 1950s, including Vulcan's Hammer, are deeply optimistic, seeing hope for humanity in some distant frontier or maybe a jolt to the system or even a reform in this case. In, this, in Vulcan's Hammer, Vulcan 3's turn towards insanity is the key to rebooting a stagnant system. In the world Jones made, it was Floyd Jones himself, a person with frontier dreams, who does that. And even in Time Out of Joint, it's the lunatic's dream of man's place in the stars and Dick's loyalty was them are there despite their violence towards Earth. In The Man Who Japed and A Doctor Futurity, resistance comes from an unlikely source, and again, it's a jolt to the system that leads to a systemic change, but not necessarily a revolutionary overturning of the system, just a, sli just a slight course correction. 
Change also requires a clear vision of alternatives, though, and movement cultures and individual courage, and those are on display in Vulcan's hammer as well. So, yeah, not one of his best, but I, I think it's one of these novels that might be worth a revisiting just because of its its contemporary um, value to in our some of our contemporary debates, especially on the surveillance state and big data. So um, that does it for my review of Vulcan's Hammer. So this also, I think, ends what I'm going to call, is it season one, chapter one, unit one, part one of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. I think with these, even though this novel and Dr. Futurity were published in the 1960s, they're of the 1950s. So I'm putting them in that context. So everything that came before, I think, can be looked at as a unit. And everything that comes after these publications is somewhat new in a way. The Man in the High Castle is going to be our next work. And I think this really does open up his 1960s career. And he writes a lot of novels in the 1960s. I, I counted once. It's, it's like 14, 12, 13, 14, 15. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's more than one a year from 1962 to 1970. Not that many stories, but still a fair number of stories well, as well. And so that's going to be like chapter two or season two of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. So I'll even maybe find a new bumper for you guys. So you won't be bored of this one. And then I guess the 70s and 80s would be sort of like chapter three or, or unit three of, of, of this podcast. So it's kind of a turning point here. We're going to really start talking about new themes. We're going to, you know, old themes will come back, but we're going to start to see a real significant change in almost every way of how Dick looks at the world. And it's also an important change in his career. You know, at the in the 19, early 1960s, he was trying to write mainstream fiction and trying to get off the science fiction um, wagon. He fails in that. He can't get his mainstream novels published, so he returns to science fiction, but he returns in a big way, and he jumps in with both feet, and he writes some really wonderful novels. So I'm really looking forward to jumping into the true 1960s over the next uh, months. Yeah, it's like 14 novels, so figure 20 weeks or so for that, and then another 15 or 20 stories, so figure another 10 weeks for that. So, you know, the next months I'll be looking at the 1960s as, as kind of one period of time in Dick's career. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. So um, I'll see you shortly. Next time it'll be kind of a... Of, in a way, a fresh start, but we'll be beginning with The Man in the High Castle, published in 1962. So thanks so much for listening and supporting this podcast and, and bearing with me through some of these perhaps less famous and less appreciated novels by Philip Dick. Please leave your own thoughts about Vulcan's Hammer below I'll, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you so much. Um, but if not, I'll be back with... Uh, the first of what I think will be a five-part series on The Man in the High Castle. I won't be talking about the TV show because I haven't watched it and I don't intend to watch it. Um, but if any of you have specific recommendations on how we should jump into that or any ideas in that show that I should talk about, I'll gladly listen to them. But um, that's that. I At some point in the future, I may go back and look at the film adaptations and the TV series, but I don't think I'll do that. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the TV series at all. I have no way of really talking about it. I think I watched the intro once, but that, that's it. Um, but the novel, The Man in the High Castle, will be next. So again, thanks for listening and see you next time.
and possess my tired thoughts once more. That living dies, that living dies, that living dies.